Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be covering the case of Mary Collins out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Let's get right to it. Mary Santina Collins was born on July 6, 1999. She was beautiful with brown hair and sparkling brown eyes. From her first day on this earth, she captivated the hearts of her entire family. Mary lived with her grandparents, and while her grandmother was her main caretaker, there were plenty of other hands around doting on Mary. Her mom and aunts were always a huge part of her life along with her sisters, brother, and her many cousins and extended family. When Mary was three months old, her grandmother started to notice that something was different, and it started with feeding issues. They had to feed baby Mary sitting up in order for her to keep anything down. As time went on, concerns grew when Mary started missing those baby milestones. For instance, when Mary was first shown herself in the mirror, she didn't engage didn't make eye contact, but instead seemed to look past herself. Her grandma voiced her concerns to doctor after doctor, but she was dismissed. She had raised five children at this point. I mean, she knew what she was doing, but nonetheless, it seemed no one was listening. And further, just about the time she'd raise a little hell about a specific milestone, Mary would then meet it. But if anyone thought that would stop her from advocating for little Mary, then they would be severely mistaken. She kept detailed notes, researched, and sought the help of specialists. Her persistence paid off, and at the age of three, Mary was diagnosed with 22Q, which is sometimes known as DeGeorge syndrome. According to 22.org, 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome is a genetic disorder caused by a microdeletion of chromosome 22, which is present from the time a child is conceived. The 22Q deletion is almost as common as Down syndrome. It is present in one out of every 1,000 live pregnancies, in one in 68 children with congenital heart disease, and in 5-8% to 8 of children born with cleft palate. The deletion has the potential to affect almost every system in the body and can cause a wide range of health problems. Although no two people are exactly alike or affected in the same way, and the range of severity differs, much like the autism spectrum. At the time and even to this very day, many doctors aren't familiar with the diagnosis, nor do they understand the widespread variability, 
which unfortunately leaves many families searching for resources for years, just as Mary's family had. The diagnosis itself wasn't that important. Mary was Mary, and she was far more than any disability. But it's what the diagnosis would provide. If they understood what Mary's challenges were, they would be able to advocate for her and try and get the resources Mary needed. It was around the same time that doctors discovered that Mary was born with a submucous cleft palate, something that's pretty common for those with 22Q. According to Kids Health, a submucous cleft palate, or SMCP, happens when the roof of the mouth or palate doesn't form properly when a baby is developing in the womb. This cleft is an opening underneath the mucous membrane or the tissue that covers the palate. And while a typical cleft palate is noticed when a baby is born, because the cleft and submucous cleft palate is under the tissue, it's harder to see. There are varying degrees of this type of cleft palate, and Mary's was the most severe, causing both speech and feeding issues. And it would require surgery. The surgeon told Mary's family he didn't know if she'd ever speak. But he just didn't know Mary. Little Mary had a lot to say. She was already communicating with signs in her entire little being and kept a notebook with her, every person caring for Mary, writing down each sign as she learned them. The first sign she ever learned was friend. You see, Mary always wanted to have and to be a friend. I want you to remember that because it's going to be so very important later. Mary had her challenges, and while she was sweet-natured, she was born with a fire in her soul and would let nothing hold her back. By the age of six, she did speak, defying all the odds. Her speech was impaired, and only those closest to Mary could understand. But she was speaking. Mary had found her voice. It was different, it was unique, but it was hers. Different and unique, just like Mary. At eight, her grandmother took her to Duke University to take part in a study for 22Q. As I mentioned, the disorder was, and still is, relatively unknown to many doctors. This study would not only help Mary and her family, but others like them. So she and Mary decided to participate in that 22Q clinic study at Duke. Her grandmother was looking forward to answers of how to better help Mary. Mary was looking forward to the $100 she would be getting paid to do the study. After all, she was eight. $100 felt like a million. She completed the study and had the money in hand. She could have spent it on anything she wanted, but sweet Mary chose to donate every dime to the Smile Train, a nonprofit who, among other things, covers the cost of cleft palate surgeries for children across the world. Mary wanted to give someone their smile and their voice. Her family was touched. They raised the rest of the funds to cover the full cost of a surgery for a child. They all met up and prayed over the check before sending it off. And not only did Mary get her $100, her grandmother got the answer to questions she had asked to anyone who would stand still for half a second. And Mary was diagnosed with multiple learning disabilities and they gained a better understanding for how they could help Mary. And that's just what they did. Her grandma had always been a fierce advocate for Mary from the day she was born. And as you'll see, 
that would and will never change. As Mary grew, her personality began to blossom. By the time she was a teenager, she had a love for music, and the girl had taste, loving everything from Kurt Cobain to Pretty Reckless, and even the king himself, Elvis Presley. She'd sing her heart out along with the greats and dance around in her room. Mary had a knack for photography, and it seemed the light was attracted to her. She was beautiful with a bone structure and thick hair that any high-fashion runway model would envy. But you couldn't have told her that, because as gorgeous as she was, she was equally shy. While she and her sisters would set up photo shoots, Mary rocking everything from combat boots and Nirvana tees to fancy dresses and heels, many of these photographs were never shared with the world and instead kept safe right there on her computer. She loved all things makeup and hair and watched YouTube videos teaching herself to apply the perfect winged eyeliner and dyeing her hair and buying wigs in every color of the rainbow, from bright blue to flaming red and anything and everything in between. She had a special sense about her and her family always felt she could see things they couldn't see. She was kind, trusting, quirky, funny, and her inward beauty exceeded the outward. And that's saying a lot. Mary was named after her great-great-grandmother, Mary, a name that holds a lot of meaning in her family. Her middle name, Santina, was after her great-grandmother and also means saint in Italian. And that middle name almost defined her. Almost. While she definitely had a sweet nature, she never lost that spark. In fact, as she grew, that little flame in Mary's soul that had fueled her overcoming so much only burned brighter. She had an impeccable sense of humor and loved to pull one over on her friends and family, and every now and then get into a little bit of harmless mischief. Through high school, she remained close with her siblings, aunts, and had a few close friends. But after school, those friends were moving on, going to college, and Mary just wasn't quite ready yet. Don't get me wrong, they stayed in touch and they all still love their Mary. And I have no doubt that given the opportunity, Mary would have pushed through and gotten there on her own time. But due to her diagnosis, in March of 2020, while she was 20 years old, according to her family, in some aspects, her functions and cognitive abilities were more like those of someone who was around the age of 15. Her grandmother struggled with allowing Mary the freedom to continue to blossom and shine, but keeping her safe. She knew the world could be cruel, especially cruel to someone as beautifully unique as her Mary. And Mary wouldn't see that coming. Cruel didn't exist in her. She loved deeply and fiercely, and she trusted and forgave the same way. March of 2020 was a shit show for the entire world. The pandemic had made its way to the United States, and at the time, there were so many unknowns. Businesses were shutting down and essentials were hard to come by. It was especially troubling to Mary's grandmother because not only did she not know how detrimental catching COVID-19 could be for Mary due to her 22Q diagnosis, which does affect the heart, even medical professionals didn't know. And further, she was in contact with family over in Italy, which had some of the most strict lockdown procedures. 
She worried that could soon be happening in the U.S., so she did her best to stock up on essentials and follow the quarantine guidelines for the city of Charlotte at the time. She, Mary, and the rest of the family quarantined, and by March 28th, Mary was a little frustrated with it all. She wanted to go out and do something and was tired of looking at four walls. An opportunity presented itself when she was contacted by Kelly Lavery, a girl Mary knew through one of her friends in school, Lavi Pham. You see, Mary had briefly dated Pham, and by date, I mean hung out with him and the presence of their families, for the most part. You know, they were only in high school. And while the relationship ended, there were seemingly no hard feelings. As I've said, Mary was very forgiving. Lavery and Mary communicated back and forth, and Lavery invited her over to the apartment she shared with Pham. Lavery claimed they'd have a girls' night in at the apartment, hang out, and do what you do with your girlfriends. Mary was excited, maybe a little bit apprehensive, because of previous experiences with Kelly, which we'll get to in a minute. But the girl was ready to get out of the house. She missed her good friends. She had already been quarantined for weeks. And this would be fun. Kelly offered a new friendship. But her family didn't share in the excitement for a couple of reasons. One, that was the same day the North Carolina governor had shut down the state. And they didn't really like Lavery. And believe me, they had their reasons. She was four years older than Mary. And they knew about some comments made by Kelly to Mary over social media. According to screenshots of Mary's personal Facebook page, in comments under a photo Mary posted of herself wearing a distressed denim jacket, her hair brown at the time and parted to the side, the light illuminating her perfectly done brows and natural beauty, Lavery commented, yikes, followed by Pham's comment of, ew. And if that wasn't insulting enough, Lavery, responding to no one, in nearly unintelligible slang, which I'll interpret for you, kept going. Have you ever thought maybe, just maybe, it's because you ain't shit? Further adding, I'd want to disappear ASAP, to be honest. Classy, I know. And as you'll soon learn, class wasn't a word Lavery had even so much as looked up the definition of, and judging by her skills of the English language, it appears she might have never actually met a dictionary. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. And that wasn't the only instance, according to one of two excellent articles done by the Queen City Nerve. Lavery had bullied Mary on several occasions and at least once told Mary that she should kill herself. Lavery would always be sure to apologize and make up with Mary, manipulating her with the promise of friendship, something we've already established was very important to Mary. You can see why Mary's family had concerns. However, they could have never imagined the depths of the depravity that is Kelly Lavery. No one could. Lavery paid for an Uber for Mary and had it sent to pick her up. The reason for the Uber? Mary didn't drive. Due to her different abilities, she could not navigate her way around her own neighborhood, much less a city as big as Charlotte. It was one of her biggest challenges, 
and the reason her family always tried to make sure she was with someone trustworthy and relied on them to make sure Mary made it to and from her destination safely. And the reason her family had an app on Mary's phone where they could track her location and knew where she was at all times. They wanted to make sure that as Mary made her way out into the world, if she got into trouble due to her navigation skills and the fact that her speech was impaired, someone could be there in a hop, skip, and a jump to get her back to where she needed to be. On Saturday, March 28th at approximately 2.30 p.m., that Uber ordered by Lavery arrived at Mary's family home to pick her up. Her grandmother protested again and even asked the Uber driver not to give her a ride. According to that article on Queen City Nerve, the Uber driver told her grandmother, she's grown, I'm taking her, and the car drove off, taking Mary to the yard's apartments in Noda, where Lavery and Pham lived. No one could have imagined the horror that was about to unfold over the next eight days. Mary's grandmother went back in the house and began cleaning and making preparations. She knew that upon Mary's return, she would need to quarantine again, so she wanted to make sure everything was set up and ready for Mary when she came home. She checked Mary's location. She knew she had arrived at Lavery and Pham's apartment. The day wore on tonight, and she hadn't heard from Mary. She began to worry a bit. Mary's family and friends, her grandmother included, had tried texting and calling her, but she didn't respond. That wasn't like Mary, but she focused her attention on the cleaning and tried to brush it off. Maybe Mary was just annoyed with her not wanting her to go, or annoyed with the whole pandemic situation, or maybe the answer was even more simple, and Mary's phone had died. She expected to hear from her at any second, but she didn't. All through the night, there was nothing from Mary. The next day, March 29, 2020, that feeling in the pit of her grandmother's stomach had grown. Maybe something was off. Someone in the family should have heard from her by now. They were in constant communication, so radio silence didn't make sense. And not only had Mary not called or texted, there was no activity on her social media, which was odd. But there was activity on someone else's social media. There was a post on Lavi Fam's Twitter account. It was a video. A video showing Fam, Lavery, and Mary together at the Noda apartment picking up a sushi delivery. Her grandmother breathed a sigh of relief. After all, sushi was Mary's absolute favorite food, and her sweet Mary was smiling in the video. It's a short clip, and while Pham's Twitter account has been taken down, WCNC News got access and broadcast clips of that video on a story done covering Mary's case. In the video, you can clearly see that Pham is the one recording. He records as the three of them walk down a hallway at the apartment. Pham walking in front and carrying the takeout sushi, holding it up to the camera and saying, We got sushi, with Lavery and Mary walking behind him. Lavery, her arm around Mary, who was walking, looking down at the ground. They made it to the elevator. Mary is smiling, 
Lavery tilts her head to the side, looking at Mary and smiling. She then turns, smiles for the camera, and makes a gesture with her hands. Lavery held her hand with her thumb over her middle and ring finger, extending only her pinky and index finger. A gesture that can be associated with many things, but most often is known as the sign of the horns, or the devil's horns. A sign that by itself means nothing. It's thrown up at rock concerts all around the world as a way to say rock on or hell yeah. It's not something I or anyone else for that matter would even notice or feel the need to mention. However, by the end of this episode, you'll know why I did. Lavery then turns her hand upside down and points downward, mouthing something that I can't make out. And while this video disturbs me to my core, at the time it was posted, it didn't raise any alarm bells. Mary was smiling. On any normal day, this would be nothing more than a video of three friends hanging out and getting sushi. And according to Mary's voice, that was all seemingly by design. The video gave her grandmother a false sense of security. Mary was okay. She was with her friends. I'm using that term very loosely. And she was enjoying her favorite meal, something she had done with fam during their brief relationship. This was good news. For a short time, it eased her mind and she decided she would just wait for Mary to text her. But the text didn't come. By the next day, March 30th, with no word from Mary, all bets were off. Her grandmother headed to Fam and Lavery's apartment to go and pick her up. She knocked on the door and Lavery and Fam answered. Her grandmother asked them where Mary was and they told her that Mary had left their apartment earlier in the day. But she knows that's a lie. She screams Mary's name, but Mary doesn't answer. She asks to take a look around the apartment and they allow her inside but they forbid her from going into the back master bedroom. There's no sign of Mary. She leaves the apartment and searches all around the complex. Hours passed, but she couldn't find Mary. At this point, she's frantic. She called 911 and the operator incorrectly informed her that she had to go home to make a report, but she doesn't want to leave. Her gut is telling her that Mary is in that apartment. Something is so very wrong. She needed the police, so against every fiber of her being, she left to go home and file the report, believing that law enforcement would get into that apartment and get her girl. But that's not what happens. Although her grandmother pled with officials, informing them that Mary was differently abled and had never lost contact with her family, she hadn't ran off or wandered away, and even if she had, it was urgent that someone find her. Mary's life was in danger. Another night passes. The desperation Mary's family felt was overwhelming. She hadn't made contact with anyone. And further, since Mary's phone was on a shared family plan, they could see that there had been no activity on her phone whatsoever. A phone that if by some snowball's chance in hell, she had left that apartment of her own accord, she would have needed to navigate. 
March 31, 2020. An official missing persons report was filed with the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department. This was not what Mary's family wanted. They knew Mary was in grave danger. They didn't believe she was missing. They felt she had never left that apartment. However, law enforcement didn't see things the same way. Flyers were made by Mary's mother and community members. They read, Mary Santina Collins was last seen on March 28, 2020, at a friend's house on Rollerton Road in Charlotte, North Carolina. She was wearing a black and gray striped shirt. She took an Uber from her grandmother's house, where she lives, to her friend's house, and no one there knows where she went or saw her leave. Full stop. Lavery and Pham were claiming that not only did they not know where Mary had gone, Neither of these two dimwits had seen her leave. Smells like bullshit to me. They were her friends. How many times have you gone to visit a friend and then just dipped out without so much as a see you later? I'm going to take a wild guess here and say it's probably somewhere along the lines of precisely never. The flyer went on to list the name of the detective assigned to Mary's missing persons case, Detective Jonathan Gaskin of CMPD. An officer, not Gaskin, finally went to the yard's apartments in response to the prior 911 call and knocked on the door of Lavery and Pham's apartment. There was no answer, so the officer left without speaking to anyone. Her grandmother headed back to the apartment. Once she arrived, she was unable to gain access because these are pretty upscale apartments with surveillance systems and locked gates, preventing anyone from just strolling on in or out. She made it onto the premises, but in order to get to the actual apartment, there was a secondary system of gates, cordoning off the individual apartments. So again, she looked around the complex in the areas she was able to get to and called the office manager of the apartments. As it turned out, due to the lockdown, employees were all working from home, but she was able to reach the office manager who told her he would review the surveillance footage in an attempt to find Mary. According to Mary's voice, by the afternoon, Detective Gaskin called. He informed her grandmother that he couldn't make it out to the apartments that day to look for her, but she could call 911 again. She told him that Mary was in danger, she wasn't just missing, and she needed immediate help. He told her he didn't need to respond to the scene. He could work the case from where he was. Hold up, what? What's this guy gonna do from wherever he is? This was urgent. Her grandmother explained that the manager was going to take a look at the video. She's already contacted him. And so knowing this, he put on his pants and headed down to take a look too, right? Or sent over another detective. I mean, the apartment complex was willing to assist. If Mary left that apartment, it would have been captured. They could see the direction in which she traveled, and that would give them something to go on. This was huge. But apparently Gaskin didn't see it that way because he didn't respond to the scene and sent no one. Instead, he just said, 
That's good. Sir, it's only good if you use it to find Mary. Seeing she was getting absolutely nowhere, Mary's grandmother got off the phone and dialed 911 again. And again, explained the urgency of the situation, pleading for help. At this point, Mary's mother and one of her friends met her grandmother at the apartment. An officer responded to the 911 call, and the officer and Mary's mom walked up to the apartment door and knocked. Pham answered the door. He refused to allow the police officer inside the apartment, but did agree to allow Mary's mom inside and even into the back room, where someone was sleeping on the bed covered in a sheet. Pham claimed it was Lavery, and even as she took a look around the bedroom, whoever was under that sheet didn't move or get up or ask what the hell was going on. At this point, Mary's mother was unaware that there was a second bathroom and likely felt uneasy, walking around by herself in an apartment with the last person her daughter was known to be with, with someone lying under a sheet. Seeing nothing related to Mary, she left. Mary's mother and grandmother are more convinced than ever that something has happened. But what? The responding officer spoke to the manager of the complex, and for reasons unknown to Jesus and his multitude of angels, the officer advised him not to look at the cameras. Understandably, this sent Mary's family into a panic, and no one knew it at the time, but this decision by the responding officer would be extremely detrimental, and footage would ultimately be lost. Another night fell without Mary. On April 1st, five days since Mary has left her home, Mary's family realized that despite every attempt they made to make law enforcement understand the gravity of the situation, they weren't being heard or understood or some combination of both. They begged Detective Gaskin to look at the video surveillance, and they were informed incorrectly that he would need a search warrant in order to do that. They insisted that he speak with Lavery and Pham and get answers. They can prove that was the last place Mary went, but nothing had really been done. According to Mary's voice, they felt alone, abandoned by police. But they weren't about to give up. How could they? Mary was their heart and soul, and they would have marched through hell's gates to rescue her if that's what it took. They took matters into their own hands, printing, passing out, and posting flyers, taking to social media and asking anyone who would listen if they had seen Mary or they could help them search. Search parties were organized. Family members stayed posted up around the yard's apartment, keeping an eye out for Mary or anything that could lead them to her. They were warned by Detective Gaskin that they shouldn't bang on the apartment door and that Lavery and Pham felt threatened by their presence. One would think if Lavery and Pham really didn't know anything about where Mary had gone, they'd stop whining about being threatened and get out there and help her family search, right? 
since they were her supposed friends. Look for Mary? Whined to police. They went with the second option. But they must not have felt too threatened, since they messaged multiple family members asking if anyone had heard from Mary, and eventually shared her missing flyer on their social media. Another night passed. The next morning, on April 2nd, search parties led by Mary's family and friends and volunteers from the community headed out. They searched train tracks, wooded areas, construction sites, and dumpsters. Her family, friends, and the community were sifting through trash, looking for their beautiful Mary. Where were the police? Your guess is as good as mine. They brought out drones and hired bloodhounds to aid in the search, and by they, I still mean her family and friends. Her grandmother spoke with Detective Gaskin, who informed her that he had searched the apartment. She insisted that Lavery and Pham had something to do with Mary's disappearance, and according to Mary's voice, he responded, Do you not understand? She's not there. Another night passed without Mary. On April 3rd, 2020, Mary's family is beyond tired of pleading with the detective to review the footage. They not only called the office manager and got his permission, but permission was granted from the corporate office all in the span of 10 minutes, and they were informed unequivocally that no search warrant was needed. Again, why hadn't police reviewed the footage? Mary's family watched hours upon hours of footage and didn't see her anywhere. They were unable to view the video of Mary entering the apartment because it was a new month. Mary had arrived on March 28th, and though only a matter of days had passed, all footage for the month of March had been deleted because that was the policy of the complex. Even more devastating, the footage had been deleted just an hour before they arrived, and there was no way to recover it. They placed a call to Detective Gaskin to let him know that they had received permission from corporate to bring their own hired bloodhounds to the apartment. The dog handler just needed him to sign off on it. But he didn't respond in time. And due to the limited hours of operation because of the pandemic, the opportunity was missed. Another punch in the gut for Mary's family, and they just kept coming. According to screenshots posted in the Mary's Voice Facebook, a former homicide detective had inquired about Mary's case, and they were told that CMPD was just now, seven days after Mary vanished, taking her case seriously, because they had received information that Mary had done this before. This was confirmed by a local TV station who also inquired about Mary's case, and they were told about the same story. CMPD didn't think Mary was in danger. Nothing was farther from the truth. And it begs the question, who had told police this, and why? And why in the name of everything that is holy did Gaskin not ask the family about this story of Mary running off? Did he not check for reports? Because if he did, he would have found nothing. Another night passed. 
It's now April 4th, 2020. Team Mary is up and at it early that morning. Her mother went down to the complex to finish viewing the rest of the footage, desperate to find her daughter. At the same time, she consulted trafficking experts, grasping for anything that had a remote chance of bringing Mary back to them. As the day wore on and night fell once again, her grandmother was overwhelmed with a feeling that she didn't want to leave the apartment and would rather sleep right there on the grounds. She sensed Mary was near. They all did. A phone call at 10 p.m. changed everything. Her family had been right all along. Mary had never been missing. The call came from someone Mary's grandmother had given her number to in the local area, just in case they spotted Mary. When she answered the phone, the person on the other end informed her that Mary had been found, and there was an ambulance on scene at the apartment, which led them to believe Mary was alive. She rushed over to a nearby hospital ER, but due to COVID restrictions, she wasn't allowed in. She stood outside and had someone go and check. She was informed that Mary wasn't there, so she hopped back into her car and began driving to another nearby hospital. But on the way, her phone rang again. This time, it was her son-in-law who told her she needed to get home. She was so distraught, she couldn't even remember how to get there, but somehow she did. She, along with other family members, waited anxiously until two police officers arrived. Two uniformed officers the family had never met informed them that their precious Mary had been murdered in that apartment. The details so horrific, Mary's grandmother couldn't even bear to hear them all. She left the room, rage taking over her body, as she wondered, where in the hell was Detective Gaskin? Why hadn't he notified her? And how had this happened after they had begged and pleaded for someone, anyone, to save Mary? It was too late. Mary was gone. Her family and friends were crushed. After a sleepless night, her grandmother awoke the next morning and took a candle from Mary's room to the yard's apartment at dawn to pray. It was April 5th, 2020, Mary's mother's birthday. The truth about what had actually happened during those eight days, Mary's family and the entire community were out searching for her, was absolutely brutal and horrific, and it would all be revealed through search and arrest warrants, probable cause affidavits, later bond hearings, and other court documents. Before I get into it, while I don't normally give trigger warnings, the details I'm about to discuss are extremely graphic and disturbing. What investigators believe these monsters have actually done is beyond any standard of human decency or comprehension. Now is your chance to turn this episode off. On the night of April 4th, 2020, Investigators, acting on a credible tip, obtained a search warrant for Lavery and Pham's apartment at the Yards in Noda. According to that warrant, when officers arrived, they made contact with Lavi Pham as he exited the apartment. Investigators called out to Kelly Lavery, 
but got no response, so they made entry. Lavery was located in a bed in the apartment, possibly under the influence of an unknown substance. They had to wake her up and escort her out of the apartment. With both Lavery and Pham out of the way, investigators began to clear each room. They made their way to the master bedroom, pulled off the blankets, and discovered what appeared to be a body wrapped in black contractor-grade trash bags inside the mattress. They cut away the plastic bags and found Mary's body wrapped in layers of duct tape along with dish detergent and pumpkin spice shower gel and an attempt to mask the odor of decomposition. Mary's identification and bank card were also located hidden in the bedroom under a stack of papers. Blood was found in both the master bedroom and bathroom. Saran wrap, duct tape, and a box for contractor-grade trash bags were also discovered. An iPhone located in the bed where Lavery was sleeping was also taken as evidence. Needless to say, Lavery and Pham were arrested and booked on charges of kidnapping, murder, and concealing a death. More arrests were coming. But what had led police to finally search the apartment? That credible tip, the one cited in the search warrant. As it turned out, they had received that same credible tip not once, but twice, and this was actually the second time they had searched the apartment, failing to locate Mary's body or any of the evidence on their previous search. Police would later state that the reason they missed everything during that initial search was because it was a consent search agreed to by FAM, and it wasn't as detailed as the second. They were given access to the master bedroom, and the mattress was lifted. FAM had even spoken calmly with the missing persons unit, still claiming Mary had left. They were likely just feet away from her body as they spoke. Detective Brian Crumb with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police would later speak to Michelle Bowden of WCNC Charlotte, attempting to explain, stating, The way everything played out, it wasn't obvious. Even my folks, when they went back with the search warrant, they were shocked at how well she was concealed. We ultimately had to open the mattress in order to find her. She was fully concealed inside the mattress. Note how he says, even my folks. His folks were homicide detectives who weren't brought into this investigation until April 4th, otherwise known as the day Mary's body was found, according to the probable cause affidavit. And while the affidavit doesn't explicitly state that the first search was conducted by the missing persons unit, it does make note that from March 30th until April 4th, missing persons detectives were to, quote, investigate the case and follow up on leads. That first search had taken place on April 2nd. And if you recall, according to Mary's voice, Detective Gaskin told Mary's grandmother right around that exact same time he had searched the apartment and insisted that Mary wasn't there. I'm no mathematician, but 2 plus 2 equals 4. It wasn't until there was a change in investigators that Mary was found. 
Is it possible Gaskin didn't take the search of the apartment seriously in the same way he seemingly didn't take Mary's case seriously? Or had he just sent a random uniformed officer because he was yet again unavailable? Inquiring minds want to know. Let's get back to that two-time credible tip. According to court documents, just before that first search of the apartment, on April 2nd, a witness came forward to police and told them that Jimmy Salerno was bragging about being at a party with Mary and that Pham and Lavery had tied her up, beat her in a bathtub, and later hid her body in a mattress, planning to burn the mattress with Mary's body inside. But who was Jimmy Salerno, and how did he know all this? Jimmy Salerno was actually 21-year-old James Robert Salerno, who, although he was barely old enough to buy a pack of smokes, already had a criminal record, dating back to 2017, including charges of robbery with a dangerous weapon, conspiracy to commit armed robbery, and more recent charges of reckless driving and a hit-and-run. We're off to a great start. Salerno was a friend of Pham's and someone Mary had actually met at one point, although she couldn't stand him and thought he was mean and rude. It seems likely that if Mary had known this douchebag was going to show up, she would have never gone over there in the first place. When the witness who reported the first tip realized that Mary hadn't been found, on April 4th, they reported the story Salerno had told them yet again to investigators, this time bringing a second witness who had also heard Salerno make these statements. This was a tipping point in which homicide detectives were brought in. The day after Mary had been found and Lavery and Pham had been arrested, on April 5th, 2020, James Salerno was also arrested and charged with kidnapping, murder, and concealing a death. An autopsy was performed on April 6, 2020. Mary's body was covered in bruises, most notably a large bruise covering most of her scalp. It was evident that she had been beaten. And that wasn't all. The medical examiner counted 133 cutting wounds in total, all over Mary's body. These wounds varied in type and severity. There were approximately 74 superficial cutting wounds, 28 shallow cutting wounds, 31 deep cutting wounds, 17 superficial stab wounds, and 7 shallow stab wounds. And while there were multiple stab wounds, not a single internal organ or major blood vessel were affected. The medical examiner determined that Mary's cause of death was due to multiple sharp trauma injuries, or in simple terms, Mary Santina Collins bled to death, and without any major blood vessels or internal injuries, her death likely wasn't over quickly. There really are no words. Mary had been lured out of her apartment with promises of sushi and friendship, attacked, stabbed, beaten, tortured, and murdered. But why? The investigation continued. 
The weeks ticked on, and on May 12, 2020, 18-year-old America Deal was also charged in connection to Mary's murder. Deal was charged with felony accessory after the fact and concealing a death. She turned herself in, but not to the Charlotte Mecklenburg police. Oh no, Deal had fled and was on the other side of the country, hiding out in Colorado. According to court documents, investigators were able to tie Deal to the crime through various communication platforms and social media. Through these communications, they were able to place Deal at the scene, communicating with Salerno, who she had met on Tinder. And if that wasn't damning enough, her fingerprint was found on evidence at the scene. At her bond hearing, attorneys arguing for Deal would claim she was forced into helping hide the body. The attorney stated, she described Kelly, the co-defendant, in her words, the ringleader, and that Kelly was giving orders to everyone else as far as what should be done. Deal ultimately bonded out of jail on September 18, 2021, and is reportedly living with her family in Clover, South Carolina, awaiting her trial. But it would seem not everyone in her family is happy Deal was able to post bond, and while she was still in jail, they said so publicly. According to screenshots posted on the Mary's Voice Facebook page, Deal's own sister, with the same last name, wrote in a comment, I know her personally, as I am her sister, and I can tell you that the cell she is sitting in is exactly where she belongs. The majority of her own family believed this in their hearts as well. Going on to say, this type of crime was just in the shadows, waiting for her to escalate and perform. Innocent people don't flee to Colorado after one of the other three involved tell them he or she is about to be arrested for a murder. You go to the police and file a report on the information you just received. If they made you clean up and dispose of the body, then why didn't she go to the police once the other three were in custody if she supposedly feared for her life? You don't fear for your life if those others are in a jail cell. She was with this gang the entire week that Mary was missing, doing drugs and God knows what else. But she conveniently wasn't there when a 19-year-old girl with a cognitive impairment was murdered. That's bullshit. If that doesn't tell you something, I don't know what will. Deal made some social media posts of her own after Mary's murder. On April 29, 2020, she shared a to-do list. On the list, number one, praise the Lord. Number two, break the law. Number three, take what's mine. Number four, take some more. The following day, on April 30th, she wrote, It's a good-ass day not to give a fuck, let me tell ya. And on May 5th, who the fuck else wants deleted? That made 16 people today. Who's fucking next? And while we're on the topic of social media, Lavery and Fam also had a habit of posting and commenting. On his Twitter, which according to search warrants has been seized as evidence by investigators, 
Sam, who went by the handle DeadFuck, posted on April 4th, the same day Mary was found. He posted an image of a cartoon duck holding a knife. He captioned it, yes. This son of a bitch. And Lavery. Well, it appears she was an internet troll who liked to brag about her daddy's money. I'm sure he's so freaking proud. In comments on Instagram, in an argument provoked by Lavery with someone who shall remain nameless but is not connected to the case, Lavery proclaimed, I graduated with a 4.0 in honors, so I don't think so. I'm living rent-free, bills-free. My entire life is handed to me on a diamond-encrusted platter, so I don't think so, sweetie. Not my fault I'm so perfect I can get a cold-hearted N-word to propose in four months. Oh, where to begin? It's difficult for me to repeat that last sentence even after cleaning it up. It's also hard to buy that 4.0 honors bullshit when commas, capitalization, punctuation, and any basic understanding of grammar has left the building. I mean, if you're going to brag about a 4.0, you might want to at least fake it. Also, I wouldn't brag about being a blood-sucking leech, but apparently Lavery thinks it's some kind of badge of honor. You and you alone, sweetie. And let's get real. I've seen the mugshot. You're not the prize you think you are, and we'll just leave it at that. Further screenshots reveal Lavery saying she's sorry for bullying someone else online, and she did it because she was bored. Perhaps a job would come in handy here. And then there's the good old high school yearbook, which photos were taken of and posted online. Lavery's senior photo is posted, and underneath her responses to prompts are printed. Future career plans, undecided. In 10 years. I will be richer than all of you. I'm pretty sure inmate isn't exactly a career path. There are no diamond-encrusted platters in the big house. But hey, she'll still get to live rent-free. Solid plan, you insufferable little shit. Kelly Lavery, Lavi Pham, James Salerno, and America Deal are all currently awaiting trial. What do you say, Charlotte? Let's keep this scum off the street, lock them up, throw the key in an incinerator never to be found again, and call it a day. Mary represented everything right and good in the world. Her grandfather, who she called Papa, wrote a letter to the court that was read aloud at one of Deal's bond hearings, in which he wrote in part, Mary was born with velocardiofacial syndrome, a chromosome deletion, specifically the 22Q chromosome. Her spirit was too free and rambunctious to be defined by this disability, yet there is no denying this affected her life in profound ways, a prism that she was always looking through, the most obvious manifestation of VCFS with regards to Mary was her speech impediment. People that first met her would find difficulties in understanding Mary fully when she spoke, 
This led to a sort of innate shyness on Mary's part, understandably. Surely every parent that starts an exercise such as this note finds it hard to quantify the value of a child or measure the impact that she had on the people she touched along the way. With Mary, this is especially true. Words do not have the value or carry enough currency to fully encapsulate Mary to those who didn't know her. Trying to describe Mary is like trying to describe music. They exist on another plane, beyond verbiage, descriptors, and punctuation. He went on to describe life without her. So 20 years of memories, family vacations, holidays, father-daughter dances, Girl Scout meetings, daily minivan cartage to daycare, elementary, middle school, nanny's house, and beyond. Are they all lost to the cruel vacuum of time? It's the end of innocence, undoubtedly, but I say no. Mary's life had value. She mattered. She always did. Was Mary's fundamental innocence and trust in others what led to her end? It appears so. Her trust was betrayed in such a sinister and calculated way by an evil that is beyond comprehension by any reasonable person. Her family will never be the same again. We may never be happy again. There will be a hole in our hearts, our collective trust betrayed as well. It comes full circle to the fact that she trusted people to a fault. Mary's family is left to pick up the pieces and to try to manage the impossible task of living their lives without their sweet and beautiful girl. Mary, whose greatest love was music, who liked her dog Zelda, Japanese candy, going to the salon, thrift shopping, makeup, and wigs. Their beautiful girl who had overcome so much and had dreams of doing so much more like flying in an airplane and traveling to Salem, Massachusetts, New York, or England. Mary might have had a disability, but she never let that define her. Her dreams were the same as any other young woman. In a letter Mary's family found after her death, she wrote, Dear Mary Collins, Promise yourself to be strong that nothing can disturb your peace of mind. Look on the sunny side of everything and make your optimism come true. Think only for the best. Forget the mistakes of the past and press on to the greater achievements of the future. Give so much time to the improvement of yourself that you have no time to criticize others. Live in faith that the whole world's on your side as long as you are true to the best that is in you. And be proud of yourself for where you are and help others that aren't there yet. Move out of your mom and dad's places and find one of your own place to live and get a job and get married. Signed, Mary Collins, the younger version of yourself. If only the world lived by Mary's standards. The cruelty that ripped her away can only be defined as one thing. And that is evil. There really is no other explanation. They have taken Mary's life, but they can never dim her light or silence her voice. Oh no, 
Mary's voice will be heard through her family, friends, and the community that loved her. A foundation has been created in honor of Mary Santina Collins, the website reading. Mary's Voice is a grassroots campaign that will improve public safety for all persons with disabilities. Justice for Mary is justice for all persons with disabilities. We are committed to being a voice for the voiceless, Mary's Voice. We will take our convictions and turn them into action. We're committed to changing policies and laws to further the protection of missing young adults and disabled persons. You can learn more at justiceformarysantina.com and even become a part of Mary's Voice. Monday, March 28, 2022 will be the start of an online vigil for Mary. I'll be taking part and I ask all of you to do the same. Let's surround Mary's family with love and light, just as Mary would have wanted. We have to demand justice for Mary. It goes without saying, but I'll be following this case closely and bring you updates as they become available. As always, you can find more information on this case or any of the others I've covered on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these. I'll also post links to Mary's voice in the show notes. I'll be bringing you an all-new case next week, so make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, I leave you with the words of Mary's sister, Riley. I miss you. I think I still believe I might find you somewhere hidden somewhere perhaps forbidden, yet your soul is tied to mine. So there isn't any place I'm too scared to try, baby sister of mine, it wasn't your time, how dare God decide to take you somewhere I can't find? I want to scream. It's the only release from these demon thoughts that won't let me sleep, your face constantly in my dreams running after you like please don't leave, your name constantly on repeat, cycled in are the faces that took you from me and all the things I want to do to avenge you, revenge seems like the only thing to do, hurt them, the way they took away every future second I had with you, so many things we had planned now all misconstrued, when they told me, my brain wouldn't let me believe it was true. Who could hurt someone as beautiful as you? Why does God take the most vulnerable ones? How could he dim the light of someone so young? Someone so good? And never the ones it sometimes feels like he should? Trying to keep my thoughts light. Despite darkness calling to me because in my sister I still believe. Holding on to my faith like a lifeboat. Pain bubbling up. Trying not to choke. I love you, Mary. I just have to let you know. And when my time comes into eternity will go, sister, sister, forever will glow.
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organisation called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.